You can turn with me in your Bibles back to the book of Ephesians as we continue our study through the book of Ephesians. We'll be looking this morning at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, a familiar and precious passage to us. As we begin, I want you to think with me for a second about camera angles. I don't know if you've ever paid attention when you're watching a movie or a TV show or a sporting event to the camera angles. These days, the, the number of cameras in a sports arena is tremendous. You can see the game from every angle you ever wanted, and a few you probably didn't want. In the midst of a documentary, getting several camera angles add interest to the dynamic flow of under, a better understanding of the, the topic that they're unpacking for you. And in an action movie, the rapidly switching camera angles uh, add interest to the, to the scene when Neo finally outsmarts Agent Smith. It's actually funny how you can have several camera angles of the same thing, but just by changing the angle at which you view the same thing adds interest, draws you in, makes you curious, causes your brain to to put pieces together that you might not have otherwise noticed. It creates a better understanding. It improves the dynamic flow. That is exactly what the Apostle Paul is going to do to us this morning. You would think as we move from Ephesians 1 to Ephesians, stop talking about the gospel and our salvation. And having spent last week looking at the topic of, from the perspective of, as though we were looking up to heaven and seeing how, you remember Ephesians 1, the the Father chose you, the Son redeemed you, the Spirit seals you. It's as though we're seeing salvation happen from the perspective looking up towards heaven. Now the Apostle Paul will move not to a different topic, but to the same topic from a different camera angle. It's as though he now spins the camera around and looks down from heaven at the human perspective of salvation, as it were. In chapter 1, he cataloged his teaching on the gospel from heaven's perspective. Now in chapter 2, he'll catalog his teaching on the gospel only from a human perspective, from an earthly perspective, with the feet on the ground, as it were. First in chapter 2, he's going to move in for a tight shot on the individual soul, explain the gospel from that perspective, and then he'll zoom out, as it were, to explain gospel really makes you not an individual soul, but part of a collective group who have been redeemed. So last week, we looked at gospel doctrines 1, 2, and 3. The the Father chose you in verses 3 through 5 of chapter 1. The Son redeemed you in 1, 6 through 12. The Spirit sealed you in 1, 13 and 14. And then, of course, Paul's little interlude where he is moved to just pray for the Ephesians and to share with them his prayer. Now, as we move into chapter 2, we'll see gospel doctrine number 4 you've been brought to life. In this section, on a perspective of salvation from the, from the human viewpoint, as it were, Paul is going to describe in verses 1 through 10 how you are spiritually dead, but you've been brought to life. Look at verse 1. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Here, sin is described as the behaviors, right? 
the things you do that are sin, trespasses. You crossed a line that God had said not to cross. Sins, you failed, you missed the mark. This is so important though, sin isn't just behavior. And Paul wants the Ephesians to understand that. Sin is an internal reality of the heart in which there is spiritual death resulting in behavior. That's why he says that this, you were dead in the trespasses in which you once walked. Could have just said, you once walked in trespasses and sins. But he wants them to understand those trespasses and sins, those external realities of the sin, the, the part that we see is due to an internal reality of spiritual death. This is exactly what God told Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Your sin will bring death. That's why Paul continues in this logical thought here, describing sin not only as the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, the actions, but now also explaining how sin is a reality of the heart. Look at verse 2. He continues to say, you were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. So you were committed in your heart to follow the world, to follow Satan. Satan was at work in you through your disobedience. And what's more, verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Have you ever thought about this? But did you know that you always do exactly what you want to do? Now, I know you're thinking, well, I mean, you know, I had to do the dishes last night. I didn't really want to do the dishes. Well, it's just better than the, the alternate reality of not doing the dishes and the resulting bugs and smell when you wake up in the morning. And so you wanted to do the dishes. You did them because you wanted to, even though we would say, I didn't want to. We always do exactly what we most want to do. Of all given possible options, we always choose the thing that we most want. Your problem before you were a Christian before you were saved, was you were spiritually dead. And the result of that is not just that you did the wrong things, but you did them exactly because you wanted to. You wanted to sin. You were in bondage to the desires of your body and mind, is how Paul phrases it here. You once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, in verse 3. You couldn't choose to live a truly righteous, truly meaningful life because you didn't have that desire on your own. You only wanted selfish and sinful things. You were in bondage to your sinful nature. It's funny how you'll talk with an unbeliever about some sin that they're committing, and they'll say something like, I can stop anytime I want to. I love to just say, well, that's precisely the problem. You're never going to want to. We think that not sinning is just a matter of changing our behavior. But the Lord wants us to understand that there's a far deeper issue here. People sin because they want to, because their hearts are broken. They are spiritually dead on the inside. They're not able to see right from wrong truly. People sin because they want to, because their hearts are corrupt from birth, because people sin because 
as Paul explains here, that's just who they are. That's just who we were before the Lord saved us. We were sinners. When we say that, we don't mean we committed sins. We mean we were sinners. We were broken on the inside. We were spiritually dead. Psalm 51.5, David understood this. He said, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Genesis 6.5, right before the flood, God says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And this is why Paul continues in the second half of verse 3. Look at it there. He says, and you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, before our salvation, we were rightly subject to the wrath of God, deserving punishment for our sins of action, omission, desire, the, the spiritual death in our hearts. We were in all of these ways dead. That's why Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You know, it's often said of salvation, you might have heard the, uh, the, the picture given You were out there being tossed by the waves in the ocean, tossed by the waves of the world on the brink of drowning, and God saved you. He threw you a life preserver, and it was labeled Jesus. And all you had to do was trust Him enough to grab hold of it. The problem with that is passages like this in the Bible. If you want to use a swimming in the ocean metaphor, it goes a little bit more like this. As God cruised by in his boat, you cussed him out, and then you drowned, and then you sunk to the bottom of the ocean. And there was water filling your spiritual lungs, and your heart stopped beating. You were not a drowning swimmer in need of a life preserver. You were a corpse at the bottom of the ocean with no spiritual pulse, unable to choose anything, water filling your lungs. That's why 1 Corinthians 2.14 describes it this way. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It is as though God were talking to a dead person. It is as though... God is broadcasting the gospel to us on FM. And all we've got is the AM receiver in our 1976 Nissan. Just no matter how much you spin that dial, you're never going to understand what God is saying. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned and the natural man does not yet have the Spirit of God. This is actually why Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So you and I were, as Paul says here, dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, captivated by the world, following Satan, in bondage to our sinful flesh, unable to believe the gospel, under the wrath of God, you think about a negotiation. So we sit down at the table to negotiate salvation with God. 
That's what we bring to the table of the negotiation. <laughs> we bring our spiritual death, bondage to our sinful flesh, our allegiance to Satan and to the world. But notice, all of this is past tense. You were dead. You were children of wrath. Man, in a situation so horrible, I mean, you're thinking like, I thought we come to church like be encouraged. So far, it's kind of going downhill, right? Thank you, pastor. May I have another? Well, Paul's going to continue because he understood to clearly understand the beauty of the good news of the gospel, you need first to clearly understand how bad the bad news really is. This is all past tense. Verse 4 pivots the entire chapter here, the entire argument. Verse 4, but God. So all of that is true of us. That is what we bring to the table of our salvation, but God. And if you've ever heard people making a big deal out of the, the two most important words in the Bible, but God, that's a good way to think about it. You owe that spiritual heritage to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, his sermon entitled, But God. I'd recommend that to you and really anything by the good doctor. In fact, here's a note to people in the future. If you're watching this on YouTube or listening to this on your podcast, you should just turn this sermon off right now. Go listen to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones on Ephesians 2. Stop wasting your time with Jason Drum on Ephesians 2. So close your browser window. Exit out of your podcast app. Swipe up and go straight over to the Martin Lloyd-Jones Trust and listen to Dr. Lloyd-Jones on Ephesians 2. And while you're at it, you should watch Logic on Fire, The Life and Legacy of Martin Lloyd-Jones, because This Is Us is over. You don't have anything else to watch anyways. So Martin Lloyd-Jones was the one who initially kind of, well, Paul was the one who initially made a big deal out of but God. Uh, if you've heard of this referred to as the, the two most important words in the Bible, it's probably because of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we should always be using these words as Christians, but God. We should always be thinking this way. Yes, yes, it's this bad, but God. He kind of paints the picture like as we, as we mix with unbelievers in day-to-day life and conversations and in social settings, um, and they say, oh, have you, have you heard the news? It's so bad. Have you read the paper? They set before us all of the teeming problems of the world. He says they, they indulge in their forebodings. Isn't it terrible, they say? And they go on with their negative prognostications. He says, but then they finish. And when they finish, you and I begin. And what is it that we have to say to them? We say, yep, you're right. The outlook really is as bad as you say it is. That's right. Yeah, it really is that black. It really is that horrible but God. 
What Joan says, look at these two words that we're always to be using. This is the Christian position. We make this protest. We have always this. When man is finished, when the statesmen have finished, when all the philosophers have finished, and when they have all come to nothing, then we begin, and we begin with these mighty words, but God. That is because our spiritual death has brought us to realize the gospel begins where man ends, when all of the things that we can bring to the table are nothing but God. Verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Notice the reason He did it. It's not that we were lovely. It's not that we were worthy. It's not that we were special. It is that He is so merciful and so loving, it overflows into our lives. He did it because that's who God is. He is, by nature, a Savior. He is, by nature, abounding in loving kindness. He is, by nature, rich in mercy, full of great love for us. That's why there's a but God in verse 4, because of His character. And just, just so you, Paul's sure that you get it, he's going to repeat what he said now in verse 5. Look at it. He says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. You were dead, He made you alive together with Christ He continues, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice the threefold repetition of the idea there. Made us alive together, raised us up with Him, seated us with Him. It's, it's, you expect you were dead, but God made you alive, right? That seems like, okay, there's death on this side and life on this side, but then Paul continues to put more on the scale. You were, he made us alive together with Him and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. It's amazing. Here's a passage that kind of slides behind the scenes and into Easter Sunday without being noticed. Those who saw the resurrected Christ in the Gospels didn't realize that at that very moment that Jesus came alive in the tomb and the stone was rolled away and He walked out of the grave, at that very moment when He was raised to life, we also were spiritually with Him raised to new life. Someone's at your door. So we were sunk dead at the bottom of the ocean with no spiritual pulse whatsoever. And anyone who threw a life preserver would have found that we had no ability to grab hold of it. We were dead. But God did an insane, indescribable, incomprehensible miracle described to us here in Ephesians chapter 2. He called your name. He brought your lifeless body to the surface and breathed spiritual air into your lungs, and His Spirit caused your heart to begin to beat, and He brought you from death to life. 
That's the moment when, having been regenerated to new life by the Spirit of God, your eyes were open, and you could finally see the gospel as true. On the outside, if someone had been sitting in the room with you, it might have just been as simple as you going, huh, gospel's true. Jesus is God. He died for my sin. I need to repent get right with the Lord. God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I need your grace. might have been that simple if someone had been sitting there. But behind the scenes, that moment took a miracle of resurrection for you to have your eyes open and see that the gospel is true. Nicodemus wanted to understand when, John, when Jesus was telling him in John 3, he says, how, how can a man be born again? Jesus answered in John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 describes salvation this way, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, hearkening back to the creation account, God made everything out of nothing. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is a beautiful description of what happened to you the moment you were born again. That is why you were dead. You were a child of wrath. But God has made you alive together with Christ. That's what we're seeing. It is as though God, standing over and within the timeline of all human history, looked across the timeline from beginning to end and saw nothing but spiritually dead people. And at this one moment in history, when Jesus died and was resurrected from the grave by the power of the Spirit of God. It is as though the Lord took hold of every person throughout history whom He had chosen and united them with Christ so that we too, in that moment in history, were raised from spiritual death to life with Christ. Colossians 2.13 says the very same thing. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And notice what the ultimate outcome of this will be in verse 7. I mean, this is amazing. We think, wow, it's pretty incredible that I was saved. Well, you have no idea. Look at verse 7. He did this so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ. Part of the reason that the Lord saved you, Christian, is so that in the coming ages, all heaven would declare how great and gracious God is. Look at what He did. For all eternity, it says, in the coming ages, He's going to show off His grace. You get a taste for some of that in some of the worship scenes in the book of Revelation, right? Now, if everything that Paul hasn't, 
has been saying wasn't entirely clear, he's now going to give an overarching summary statement in the next verses. Some of the most well-known verses in Scripture, verse 8, and he means this to be a summary of everything he's just said, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's as clear as it gets. And as he says, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. None of us get to say, I did good enough to get to heaven. There is no good enough to get to heaven. Only Christ is good enough to get to heaven. It's because we were raised to spiritual life together with him. We're given his righteousness. That's what makes us good enough to get to heaven. Not our good works, his And it's as though we have to ask, well, then what role do good works play in the Christian life? I mean, what are good works all about? Because there's a lot of commands in the Bible to do stuff. There's a lot of things we're supposed to be doing as Christians, a lot of good works we should be living out. I mean, where does that fit into all of this? Paul anticipates the question. Look at verse 10. He says, for we are His workmanship. Do you want to talk about good works? God's the one who does good works. They're sitting in this room. God brought you from spiritual death to life. Talk about a good work. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we don't don't do good works to earn salvation. Good works are something that flow out of our salvation. That's really the heart of the Reformation in a lot of ways, isn't it? When you look back over church history... See, the Catholic Church said faith plus good works equals salvation. Faith plus good works equals salvation. The Reformers said, because the Bible says, no, faith equals salvation plus good works. And as you see... God's sovereignty is here. Even in our good works, Paul explains, God purposed to save you in chapter 1. He chose you according to the counsel of His will. Now in chapter 2, you're dead. He brings you to spiritual life, and then you begin to do good works from a changed heart. Changed people lived changed lives. That's where good works come in. And Paul says, oh yeah, and, and even those, God prepared that beforehand too. That also was part of his perfect and sovereign plan for your life. So basically, if I'm understanding this right, I get no credit for my salvation. And I get no credit for the good works that I do once I've been saved. You know what? The Christian heart that's been brought from death to life says amen. Amen. I get no credit. He gets all the glory. Praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. I was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, now because of him I see. Praise the Lord. And we have so much comfort in these verses because when we see 
that my salvation was not something that I achieved, it comforts my heart to know my salvation is not something I can unachieve. Because if I could lose my salvation, I'd do it this afternoon. Maybe before this sermon is over. Brothers and sisters, take comfort in this. On your best days as a Christian, you get no credit for all of the good that you do, all of the holiness that you walk in. But that also means on your worst days, you are no further from your Father than you were on that best day. Because your nearness to God is not based on your righteousness. No, you stand before Him holy and blameless with great joy, not because of the work that you've done to earn your salvation, but because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in your place. That is such a comfort. So Paul's continuing. You'll remember after spending years with the Ephesians, he's now writing to them to catalog his teaching to the Ephesians during the years that he was there. He wants them to see and understand salvation rightly is to understand that they were dead, but that they were brought to life. He also wants them to understand that they were apart. They were separated, but they've been brought together. And that's true of us as well. Our salvation is not simply an individual experience. Now Paul is going to zoom the lens out to see the, the picture of all of us standing together, having been brought to, from death to life. We now zoom out and realize we've been brought from being apart to being together. Look at verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were. Notice we've gone to the past tense again. He's pointing back to who you were before Christ saved you. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So he's again contrasting what we were before salvation, and he's going to contrast now that we are saved, how that has changed us. And here he says, before salvation, you were five things, he lists. Look at him there in verses 11 through 12. You were separated, you were alienated, you were strangers, you have no hope, and you are without God. And we were not just apart from God, but even in the way that he phrases this, apart from each other. Now, here's another but God moment in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were far off from God, far off from each other, and when God brought you from death to life, He also brought you near to Himself and effectively in the process brought you near to one another. He united you together as brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, wood glue is amazing. Did you know that if you break a board in half and then you glue it back together with wood glue, assuming you didn't buy it at the dollar store, you glue it together with wood glue, and then you attempt to break that board again, 
it will not break where the glue is. It will break somewhere else on the board because wood glue is actually stronger than the board is. There's something far more difficult to glue together than wood. People. Have you noticed how difficult it is for people to get together, to get along, to maintain unity? People are notoriously difficult to bring together in peace. We see this in the headlines. We see this in Ukraine. We see this in our homes. We see it in our hearts. People are notoriously difficult to bring together in peace. But there is something far more stronger than wood glue. It's the blood of Jesus. Verse 13 says, But now, in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. How did he do that? Jesus did that in two ways in, these, in the following verses. He did that by being our peace and by preaching peace to us. Verse 14, by being our peace, it says, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, he's talking obviously of Jews and Gentiles here and their historic hostility towards one another. But this applies across the board for the way that God has brought together people from every tribe and tongue and nation. People of different ethnicities, people of different backgrounds, people of different preferences and desires in Christ are made one when we are saved and brought together as the church, the body of Christ. We once were many, now we have been brought together in, in one body. Verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, and so make peace. Verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. It's almost as though Paul paints this picture like the moment Christ reconciled you to God, there wasn't just one person in his hands. We were all there together, right? He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. When Jesus died on the cross, it was not just him who died. He put to death the importance of all of the preferences that you have. He put to death the importance of all of the things that ought to divide us, and He did something to us and for us that is so supersedingly important that everything we disagree about, everything that makes us different becomes completely trivial and inconsequential. The life and death of Jesus mean that we have been brought together in peace. It has happened positionally. But then Jesus also preached peace because he knew he'd struggle with this. Look at verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You notice how Paul is just harping on this idea of the unity of us being saved together. 
The life and death of Jesus secured our peace with one another, and the preaching of Jesus teaches us that we should fight for that peace. Jesus said, we could go throughout the Gospels, but He said, they will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. He prayed for our unity in John 17. We go throughout, through the Gospels and see how Jesus preached peace among us as believers. Now, Paul's going to give them a little bit of application. It's not a go-do-this type of application. He'll get to that in chapter 4. This is more of a doctrinal understanding he wants them to have of what the gospel has done to them. It's a, it's a see-yourself-differently kind of application. Like, change your perspective of who you are. Understand more clearly who you are. Realize with greater clarity how God has brought you together with other believers. Verse 19, so then, you, and because we're not in Texas, that's not a y'all, but in the Greek, that's a y'all. Texas has got the English language like developed a little more further than the rest of us. The only place you can get a second person plural, unless you're like north and then you get use. So if we were in New York or New Jersey, this would be, then, then yous are no longer strangers and aliens, but aliens, but yous are fellow citizens with the saints. If we were in Texas, y'all are no longer strangers and aliens. Y'all are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You, plural, are no longer strangers and aliens. You, plural, are fellow citizens, fellow saints fellow members of God's household. Now, all of the things that you have that make you different from one another have been superseded by a spiritual reality of far greater significance. Fellow citizens, I mean, our, our home, your home is now together with these people in heaven. Your nationality is the kingdom of God. The, the flag that flies over your life is the same flag over the life of every other Christian in this room. It's the flag of the gospel, the banner of Jesus Christ. He says we're fellow saints. Our standing before God has been altered together. No longer sinful and broken, now holy and restored together to God. Fellow members of the household of God, he says, we have the same father. That's why we call each other brother, sister. It's, it's funny because when we call a brother in Christ brother, there's even more significance to that brother than there is my blood brother's. It's an even greater significance because it's a heavenly significance. It's eternal significance. We have the same father. We have the same spiritual lineage. We have the same inheritance. We've been brought together in ways that are cosmically more significant than all of our differences with each other. We've been brought together in ways that are eternally far-reaching when all of our differences are temporary. Before I read these next verses... I just want you to look at the cover of your worship guide or look at this image up on the screen here. 
Look at the temple of Artemis. Think about what it would have been like day to day to live in Ephesus as a Christian, to look up and to see that towering over the city. One of the great seven wonders of the ancient world. There's just no structures like it anywhere to be found. At the center of their city, this is one of the primary dictating things about what it meant to be an Ephesian. Imagine life lived around the, one of the most magnificent stone structures in the ancient world. And now imagine how the Ephesians would feel as they read this in verse 20. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom, in Him, you also, you plural also, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Can you imagine? Paul's point, I mean, you think the temple of Artemis is a wonder of the world? That's nothing. That thing might as well be made out of Legos compared to what God is doing, bringing you together as a holy temple. The temple of Artemis has got nothing on you, Christians in Ephesus. God is building you together with one another in the church into something far more magnificent. This is important because if you don't see the striking miracle of the way that God has brought you together with other people by the blood of Christ, you might be tempted to undervalue unity with other believers. You might be tempted to prize your personal desires or preferences over and above your unity with other Christians. This is such an important concept in the New Testament. This is why John says in 1 John 4.20, if anyone says he loves God but hates his brother, he's a liar. I mean, John's not mincing words, is he? If anyone says he loves God but hates his brother, he's a liar. He doesn't love God. How can John say that? Because if you love God, there's only one way that could have happened to you. <laughs> you were dead and you were brought to life. And when that happened, you were united together with your brother in Christ. When you are brought to life by God and simultaneously brought together with other believers in your church, it changes the way you see yourself and it changes the way you see your brothers and sisters in Christ. But just look around the room for a minute. I know you're afraid to do that. You're still looking at me. <laughs> Just look around at the other people sitting around you. Look at the faces of the people with whom you have been brought together. It's just amazing to think about. And I'll just say in light of that, if there's someone in this church with whom you have an unresolved dispute, realize that Whatever it is you disagree about is so minuscule, is so trivial 
in comparison with the grand picture of the gospel, the way that God has brought you from death to life, the way he has brought you from being strangers without hope in the world to having a hope united to one another in Christ. Realize that whatever you disagree with another Christian about is just a juice box next to the Grand Canyon. When our kids were younger, we took them to the Grand Canyon, and Claire and I have this, the kids were too young to remember this, so you can't hold it against them, okay? But Claire and I remember how we're here at the edge of the Grand Canyon, standing, looking out, just in awe, right? Just teary-eyed moment of stunned bewilderment at the beauty of what we're looking at. God made this. Wow. And we had given two of our kids juice boxes so they would have something to drink. And they're sitting in the dirt. They finished their juice boxes. And having not looked at all at this big hole in the ground next to them, they begin to fight over juice boxes, empty juice boxes, no less. They're fascinated by the importance of these juice boxes, fighting with one another for the right to claim the juice box that is mine. You just want to say, man, you're, you're focused on the wrong thing here. I don't know what to say to you. Like, I don't have words. If you just look more closely at the staggering reality of the Grand Canyon right here in front of you, you'd see the importance of this empty cardboard juice box would be appropriately put in perspective, wouldn't it? Like, what is this thing? Look at that. When we disagree with another Christian, we're just fighting over an empty cardboard juice box. Something that is nearly worthless and temporary. And we're doing it in light of the Grand Canyon of the gospel. When everything that we have in common in Christ is so fundamentally powerful, we're becoming obsessed with this little, temporary, insignificant thing. And if we would just, as Paul wants them to do, just behold the wonder of the gospel, it would solve all of our disputes without a word. The gospel carries with it the power to unite and unify people who are fundamentally different from one another. The gospel joins people together who otherwise have no reason to connect with each other in any meaningful way whatsoever, and it makes them so deeply committed to one another that it changes the world. Paul is going to tell the Ephesians in chapters 4, 5, and 6 how these gospel doctrines ought to create a gospel culture in their church. But knowing what to do in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 will do you absolutely no good if you haven't first been stunned by the staggering reality of what God has done for you, that you have been brought from death to life. You have been made from strangers to being brought together. Lord, this slips our grasp so often. It's good for us to be reminded of these things. 
we confess to you, Father, that we know we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Lord, we know you brought us from death to life. We know that we were strangers and aliens apart from you and apart from our brothers and sisters, without hope in the world. And yet, God, you brought us together. We know, Lord, that all of these spiritual realities ought to constantly blow us away. Yet, Father, how often we forget, how easily we forget. Our hearts are so prone to wander. We just confess to you, God, that we're not good at this. We need your help, Lord. Would you so imprint these gospel doctrines on our hearts this morning that it changes the way that we see ourselves, that it changes the way that we see each other, it changes the way that we see what it means to be part of the church as the single most important reality about us We've been brought from death to life. We've been reconciled to our God. We've been united together with brothers and sisters. We are fellow citizens, fellow saints, fellow members of the household of God. Lord, let the gravity of these things land on us in a way that changes the way we live. Father, thank you we praise the one who saved our souls, the one who brought us from death to life, the one who brought us together. We praise you, God. And we pray from the good works that you have planned out for us beforehand, God, you would get glory from our lives as we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.